2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong, In this new chapter, Paul seems to speak of visions and revelations that have come from Christ. In verses 1 through 6, he speaks of his persistent thorn in the flesh. In verses 7 through 10, later he'll talk about his apostolic ministry that's made manifest through signs in verses 11 through 18. But oddly enough, the signs aren't the miracles and wonders That you might be thinking about. But more having to do with patience. And steadfast endurance under trial. Now remember Paul's purpose in writing this letter. We've come almost to the end of our study. Part of the reason why Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. Was to express joy to the church. For their support. And for their commitment to Paul's ministry. In chapters 1 through 7. Also to remind the believers of their commitment. To help support the suffering churches in Judea. We learned about that in chapters 8 and 9. And to defend his apostolic ministry. In chapter 10, chapter 11, 12 and later in 13. And in the course of his defense. Paul has spoken of his service to the church. His suffering for the church. And Paul doesn't like to talk about himself. He doesn't like to boast in himself. He doesn't like to draw attention to himself. 
And you'll remember that some people may have misunderstood his reluctance to to speak about himself as evidence that Paul lacked spiritual insight or supernatural experiences. We live in a culture and a society that flocks to the supernatural. If you say that there are angels' feathers and gold dust that come from the ceiling, then guess what? Every seat in this auditorium would be full. But if you talk about Bible study, if you talk about learning and growing and grace and in the knowledge of the truth, for some people that's just kind of boring. Even in the first century, people were attracted to those spiritual experiences and visions and revelations from the Lord. Spiritual experiences and visions and revelations can be broadly placed in two categories. Those that are really from the Lord and those that are really not from the Lord. In order to save the Corinthians... From their own unhealthy preoccupation with false teachers, Paul reluctantly defends himself. And he talks about an experience. Now we live in, again, a culture and a society which places great weight on personal experience. Someone sent me a, (laughs) a resume today. They were looking for a job. And usually on your resume, you post your education and you post your experiences. And in the ministry, people will often gravitate to the person who claims to have extraordinary experiences. Paul's experiences included privilege. But remember, it was never a privilege without pain. Let's look and see. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. He's come to the end of the boast. Remember earlier in the chapter, <laughs> he says, he's using hyperbole and he talks about things that he's going to boast about. He goes, it's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. Paul has made every effort to draw attention away from himself. And when he's drawing attention away from himself, he wants to point people to Jesus. And so he's basically saying, look, it doesn't make much sense for me to brag about myself or about my experiences. Paul goes from his most humiliating experience to his most glorious experience. Remember, the last time we met in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talked about being in Damascus. The governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city. And remember, he is in a circumstance where they want to kill him. And so in order to escape the mob... He's let down over the wall in Damascus to escape with his life in the middle of the night. Again, when you go from your most humiliating experience to the most dramatic experience, it's pretty amazing. It's sort of like when I talk about going from your driver's license photo to your glamour shot. You know, for whatever reason, your driver's license photo often looks pretty bad. Your glamour shot, you hope, looks pretty good. And then there's the reality of what you really look like every day. 
So Paul will go from the most humiliating experience to the most dramatic experience. We admire people who have a command of the language, intelligence, giftedness. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he said, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything that you have, everything that comprises you is something that God gave you. God gave you life. God gave you a brain. God gave you intelligence. If you are a person of privilege, guess what? The Lord has provided that privilege for you. Whether it takes the form of material or mental or emotional stability. Paul knew that everything we have, we owe it to the Lord. And Paul was a man who was born with Roman citizenship. He had access to the finest education. He was a brilliant mind. He had command of the scripture, a dedication to ministry proven gifts, amazing faith. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no one, there's no one greater than Paul the Apostle when it comes to pure contribution to the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. And so it seems odd to me, even as I'm teaching this particular passage, Paul is addressing the person who would, who would question his credentials. But Paul has given us a different kind of resume in chapter 11. And he gives us even more bizarre credentials in chapter 12. He begins in verse 21. He says, I I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven." Paul speaks of the experience in the third person. But most conservative Bible teachers think that Paul is making reference to himself. Is Paul speaking about a man in Christ who four years, 14 years earlier had somehow had some bizarre beyond and back journey? Went to heaven, came back to talk about it. Again, most people believe that he really is talking about himself. And you might look at the text and you would say, well, uh, again, if it is Paul, why is he doing this? Why is he talking in the third person as if he's really not there? Could it be modesty? Does Paul know the danger of those who claim to have supernatural experiences or personal revelation? Does Paul want to avoid being thought of as that special person, that special Christian? If it is Paul, and he's talking about the man in Christ, and I think that it really is him, what happened 14 years earlier? Again, for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, and you're familiar with the writing style and the timing of the writing of the book of 2 Corinthians. When did he write this? I'll give you a hint. He wrote 1 Corinthians probably in the summer of 56. That's AD 56, by the way. 
He wrote it in the summer of 56. So, again, put your little thinking caps on and go, if he wrote 1 Corinthians in 56 AD, he wrote 2 Corinthians probably shortly thereafter, maybe in 57 AD. For those of you who are good at math, subtract 57 from 14, and what year do you come up with? Come on, mathematicians. 43? What was going on in the year 43? For those of you who can go all the way back to to 43 AD. Well, some of you may not be familiar with all of the stuff that's going on, but that's probably shortly after Paul has this amazing experience. He has been persecuting Christians. He heads off for Damascus. He meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He has a vision of God. He is struck down. He is struck blind. He leaves Damascus and he goes into the wilderness probably of Saudi Arabia. He doesn't have a whole lot of personal time with the apostles. Now again, what what is interesting again, if it's true, and I believe that it is, Paul would have been in a wilderness shortly after his conversion. And so that's what he's talking about. He knows of a man in Christ 14 years earlier. If it is Paul, he is talking about an event that happened early on in his ministry. And few things are more sensational than the tales of journeys to heaven and hell. And almost on a regular basis, people will call me and they will ask me, tell me what you think about 23 minutes in heaven or 45 minutes in hell or Todd Burpo and the death of Colton Burpo. And what about these people who go to heaven? And what about these people who go to hell? And what about these people who have visions and and revelations of the afterlife? What do you think about these things? And clearly, it's interesting. And the reason is reflected in how many millions of books are sold by people who claim to have gone to heaven or who have claimed to have gone to hell. Paul doesn't write a book on near-death experiences. He gives the most vague and sketchy details of the experience. He says, I don't know if I was in this physical body. I don't know if it was an out-of-body experience. I don't know. God knows. Now, I want you to think about that even for a moment. If Paul doesn't know he was in the body or out of the body, do you think it's safe for me to go, well, I know what Paul didn't know. Smart idea or not smart idea? It's not a smart idea for me to say, well, you know, what Paul couldn't figure out, I have finally figured out. If Paul doesn't know, Gino doesn't know, Paul writes in the text, God knows, I'm going to go with that. God knows. He was caught up to the third heaven. What is the third heaven? In the ancient world, people would look up in the sky, and that was called heaven. Beyond the sky is the stars. That too is called heaven. So the first heaven was the atmosphere. The second heaven 
was the visible universe. The third heaven was a way of talking about the place where God dwells. He was talking about the place that you and I would call heaven, or you and I would call the place where, where God is with, with Jesus. And he says, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. The word translated paradise is going to be familiar to most of you. It's paradison. It's the word that means the other world, the unseen world, the spiritual world. This is the same world that Jesus talks about when he's hanging on the thief on, next to the thief on the cross. And the thief says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. It seems to be a picture of the place of the righteous dead. Paul says he saw things that were inexpressible. Or unspeakable. It doesn't mean that there aren't words to describe it. Because I'm sure that, there, that Paul was not at a loss for words. He's using a figure of speech. The figure of speech is, in a sense, this is so sacred that it, it begs not to be uttered. And therefore, it's not appropriate to publish. The reason why I find this so interesting so informative and so interesting is again for the people like Mary Baxter who talks about a journey to heaven or she talks about a journey to hell or these other people who talk about journeys to heaven and journeys to hell and it makes me automatically think if Paul is forbidden from writing about his vision why do these people feel so compelled to talk about their own but it leaves us with a, with a question, and that, and that isn't necessarily to doubt a person's experience. If a person says to you, I died, my heart stopped beating, um, and the doctors pronounced me dead, and they talk about whatever vision or whatever vision they happen to see, here's what I know. I know that the only thing that we can safely understand as being a true account of what happens when you die is found in the scripture and is found by Jesus. Jesus is the only reliable source and the Bible is the only reliable source about what happens when you die. So when people ask me about these books, I simply say, look, whatever these people are telling you, you have to know at least two things. Number one, whatever they say, it has to agree with what the Bible has already said. And if it doesn't, dismiss it. If it's inconsistent with the character of God, ignore it, dismiss it. And so Paul says, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Paul seems to be saying, look, 
if the subject is now weakness, I feel comfortable talking about myself in the conversation. Since the subject is such that we've been talking about an exalted subject of what it means to die and go to heaven and come back, I thought I would leave myself out of the conversation. And in verse 6 he says, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. There is something inside of us that wants Paul to say, Tell us more. Well, I know that you just said that you saw things that are inexpressible. Could you sort of express it? I know that you've said that these things are unspeakable. Couldn't you tell us just a little bit more? I understand because I'm exactly like you. I want to know. I want to know what heaven is like. I want to know more about Paul's experiences. But Paul doesn't give us that. He says, of such a one I will boast, yet not of myself, except in my infirmities. Even though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for, for I will speak the truth. Notice what Paul says. What did you see? Can't tell you. What was heaven like? Can't say. What did you see? Can't share that. Who did you see? Paul reminds the reader that whatever he says, he's willing to tell the truth about it, but he's not forthcoming. For Paul admits, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. What truth is that? The things aren't lawful for man to utter. The things that are indescribable. What are the dangers? I need you to think about what Paul is doing and why he's writing it and why he is so not willing to talk about the experience. Because what are the dangers? People might get the wrong impression about Paul. Look what he says. Lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Do you understand that the vast majority of Paul's ministry is devoted to teaching the Bible? Preaching the Bible, sharing the reality of the identity and the ministry of Jesus, and proving from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that He lived a perfect life, that He died on the cross, that He rose from the dead, that the vast majority of Paul's ministry is devoted to that. And I know what you're thinking. Well, if I died and went to heaven, I think I'd talk more, more about it. But I think that the reason why Paul doesn't talk about it is because he doesn't want to leave the reader, number one, with the impression that that's normal. By the way, do you think it's normal to have a vision of what it means to die and then find yourself in heaven and then come back to talk about it? I don't normally do this. But how many of you have been stone cold, dead, D-E-A-D, dead, 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 D-E-A-D, dead. And then you came back to life and you had a vision of the other side. Looking, looking, no one there, no one there, N-O, 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 N-O. And you're going, 
Can you imagine how terrifying it would have been if I played a joke on you? I said, I just left you out of it, but I told everybody else in the church, look, I'm going to be teaching on this subject. And when I say, how many of you have had a beyond and back experience? Everyone raises their hand. And you're the only one who didn't raise your hand. And you're looking around and you're going, wow, these people have visions and revelation. And I'm the only loser. I can't even believe it. I'm the one person that God has decided not to let into the secret. Here's what, here's what Paul is saying. The reality is most people don't die and come back. And Paul doesn't want people to get the wrong impression. Lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Let's be honest. If for whatever reason we had this supernatural ability to go back in time and space and sit down and have coffee or tea or a smoothie or whatever it is you drink with Paul the Apostle, how many of you would be giddy? I would. I would go, dude. I've read Romans. I've read First and Second Corinthians. I've devoted a great deal of my life to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Yes, and even Philemon. I know about that book, too. I've read everything that you've written that's included in the New Testament. And I need to ask you some stuff. Wouldn't you be that way? Wouldn't you go, this is so exciting. This is so amazing. Paul is adamant. Paul doesn't want to leave people with a false impression that Christianity is about visions and dreams and revelations and journeys to heaven and journeys to hell. And that the super Christian is the one who has the super vision. And see, this is what his critics were accusing him of. Paul is adamant. The most important thing about Paul is that he's nothing more than what we've known him to be, a follower of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus, a sincere and devoted man of God who has real weakness and real pain that in many ways he's exactly like you and I, inadequate, human, dependent upon Jesus for everything. And there are several things about this verse that should cause you to just pause and take note. Number one, divine revelation doesn't correct the problems of the flesh. Number two, even after a journey to heaven, Paul remains a man of flesh and blood. Paul still faces the temptation of pride. The revelation of heaven is followed by a thorn. Look at the distance between verse 6... Verse 7, verse 8, look at verse 6. Even though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I'll speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. It's just one verse. One verse from the throne in heaven to the thorn on the earth. 
You see, I was tempted to just do the first six verses. And then I understood that it would be impossible for me to teach this passage without connecting the two together. Because look what it says. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. The source of the pain is Satan, and the purpose of the pain is to prevent pride. And so he says, unless I should be exalted above measure by by the abundance of the revelation, he's saying, because all of a sudden we, we seem to say, okay, the cat is out of the bag. Paul is admitting, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. Who's he been talking about in verses one through six? Himself. Himself. Has he received revelations from Jesus? Yes. Did Jesus speak to him on the road to Damascus? Yes. Did Jesus speak to him when he was prayed for and he received his sight? Yes. Did the Lord stand by him and give him a revelation concerning the one new man that both Jew and Gentile would be brought together in one new person and that that a church would be established? Yes. So what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? No one knows. Paul wasn't specific. Calvin thought it was spiritual temptations. The urge of Paul to waver or doubt in his faith when things were going hard. Luther thought it referred to temptations and persecutions. Some suggest sexual temptations since Paul was celibate. Others have suggested it was a disfigurement or a disease like epilepsy or severe headaches or chronic eye infections. The most common theory is failing eyesight. And many cite Galatians 6.11 where he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. In that same book, or the same letter, Galatians, Paul cites their friendship for him as being so deep that some would have gladly plucked out his eyes and given them to him in chapter 4, verse 15. This seems to strengthen the argument that Paul's eyesight was somehow a huge problem for him. But whatever it was, whatever it was, It was more than just inconvenient. It was painful. It was persistent. Linsky comments on the word thorn, quote, We have the idea of something sharp and painful sticking deeply in the flesh so that it remains there and cannot be drawn out. The verb in this passage is rare. It's translated to torment. So think thorn, think torment. It's derived in the original language from the word that was used for knuckles. It means to strike with the fist so that the hard knuckles make a blow that sting and crush the opponent. So why isn't there a united consensus on the identity of Paul's thorn? Could it be that the Holy Spirit has chosen not to reveal its identity in order to not limit its application in our own lives. We're sometimes reluctant to admit our hero Paul may have had a disability, something that hurt him 
on a regular basis that was a blow to his pride or a continual temptation. The point might just be that God allows an ongoing disability or a constant blow to our pride or an ongoing temptation in our lives so that we'll constantly rely on him and so that the power of the Holy Spirit will be upon us so that we can constantly submit to him and depend upon him. Is there something in your life that constantly trips you up or holds you back? Welcome to Paul's world. You see, he's now linked these two concepts together. A revelation, a vision, a vexation. But look at his victory concerning this thing. Look what he says. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Concerning this thing, Paul pleads for it to go away. Who can blame him? And it makes perfect sense in the, in the presence of pain that you would want relief. And maybe you've had something like that in your life where you've said, Lord, I want this to go away. I want this temptation to go away. I want this aggravation to go away. I want this disability to go away. I want this hindrance to go away. It hurts. It's painful. I don't want it. Paul prays. He prays in faith. He prays persistently. Has anyone ever asked you the question, what's the purpose of prayer? I get asked this question all the time. Hi, this is Stephen. Yeah, I'm calling from Highlands Ranch. If God knows everything about everything... If he knows the beginning and the end and everything in the middle, if he knows exactly what's going to happen every time under all circumstances and he's sovereignly in control, why talk to him? Why even pray? What do you suppose I should say to Stephen Highlands Ranch? Well, again, the question itself reveals something. It's the idea... That the only reason why we should pray for any reason whatsoever is God knows everything. And so you can't tell him anything. You can't add to his wealth of information. And since God's going to do whatever God wants to do anyway, then what good does it do to pray? And the right answer, of course, is because the purpose of prayer in part, must include friendship and relationship and love. You see, when you're in love with someone, you want to talk to them. Do you remember when you were in love? Have you ever been in love? Do you remember calling that person on the phone going, Hey, what are you doing? (laughs) And it doesn't really matter what they're doing. I'm breathing. (laughs) Let's breathe together. And your father goes, what are you doing? I'm talking to you know who. Well, all I'm doing is just, all you're doing is just clinging to the phone. Well, 
It's just comforting to know that that person's on the other end. Part of the point that is given is friendship and fellowship and understanding God's will. Part of the purpose of prayer is to discern God's will and to want to cooperate with God's will. And so Paul prays, he prays in faith, he prays persistently. And look what it says in verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The Lord answers Paul's prayer. He has prayed. He has prayed in faith. He has prayed persistently. And the Lord's answer is no. The passage is dramatic. In its literal translation, do you know what it reads? And he kept saying to me. And he kept saying to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The implication being, remember, that he prayed three times, he prays, will you please take this away from me? My grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Will you please take this away from me? My grace is sufficient for you, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Will you please make this go away? My my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul's persistent prayer resulted in a continuous answer to Paul's repeated prayer. The answer wasn't in accordance with Paul's will. It was in accordance with God's will. Paul prayed... Blessed subtraction. Jesus answered, Blessed addition. No, take away. Jesus says, No, plus. I know what you're thinking. Isn't it just as easy for God to remove my weakness, to remove my failure, to remove my pain? Isn't it just as easy? Isn't it just as easy? So Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. And Jesus can make the pain go away. And he can make the weakness go away. And he can make the failure go away. So why not just make the pain go away? Or the failure go away? Or the temptation go away? Why in the world would he give me grace? But the truth that we have to ask then is this. Does God have the right to discipline us? Does he have the right to perfect us? Does he have the right to demonstrate his power? Does God in the person of Jesus Christ, in the very real friendship and fellowship that we experience, does he have the right to grow us up? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, I think that that is the answer. By the way, look at the text again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. What do you suppose that word means? Perfect. I know what you think. You think, well, perfect means perfect. It doesn't mean imperfect. Oddly enough, here the word perfect translates a word that almost every single one of you are going to be familiar with. It's the Greek word 
to telestai. You know that word, don't you? You've heard that word before. You've been in Bible studies in the past, and you remember how Jesus was hanging on the cross, and he comes to the end of his ministry, and he cries out with a loud voice to telestai. In the New Testament, it's translated, it is finished. And the Bible says that he dismissed his spirit. He died. It's translated, it's finished. Here, it's translated, perfected. I find this very, very interesting because, again, in the context, when he says, for my strength is made to telestai. In what sense? That the grace and the strength of God is the ultimate provision for the believer. Why wouldn't God make the persistent pain go away? The Lord's answer to Paul seems to be the answer that Jesus gives to suffering saints in every generation, including our own. My grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. Now, you need to understand part of what it's, it's speaking of. It's not, it doesn't say God's grace will be sufficient. It says that God's grace is sufficient right now. It's not something that you have to add to or subtract from. It is the full and complete provision. The reason the pain wasn't allowed to go away is because it produced in Paul... A necessary incompleteness. A necessary dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. God would use Paul's persistent pain to demonstrate his own grace and sufficiency in every single circumstance. And so that seems to be in part the answer to what you're going through. I need this to go away. And the Lord says, I need it to stay. I don't want to be in pain anymore. I understand. But I want you to love me and to trust me and to depend upon me. You see, once Paul understood, Paul stopped asking for the weakness to be removed. The reason the pain wasn't allowed to go away is because it produced in Paul something that Paul needed. What's the key to this? Think about it. Look at Paul's attitude. Roy Lauren writes, It is not God's answer in granting Paul's desire, but Paul's attitude in accepting God's answer. Do you... So... Part of the point of the passage is, do you really believe that God's grace is sufficient to meet all of your needs? Do you really believe his power is revealed? Not simply in weakness, but in your weakness. So Paul writes, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God knew that there was something way more dangerous 
than the presence of persistent pain. God knew that the thing that was way more dangerous was the presence of pride in the life of the apostle. Do you think it's possible that Paul prayed, Lord, make this go away. It's hurting me. It's hindering my ministry. And then God says, there's something way more dangerous. And so I'm going to allow it to stay. Because there is another danger that you face. And the danger that you're facing is conceit and self-sufficiency. And so rather than for you to be conceited and self-sufficient, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love me and trust me. And so Paul writes in verse 10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. Is he some sort of evangelical masochist? I don't think so. He's saying it's for Christ's sake. God saw the potential for conceit. And so he allows a thorn to keep Paul humble, to keep him on his knees. J. Oswald Sanders writes, quote, The world's philosophy is, what can't be cured must be endured. But Paul radiantly testifies, what can't be in what can't be cured can be enjoyed. I can enjoy weakness. I can enjoy suffering. I can enjoy privation. I can enjoy difficulty. So wonderful did he prove God's grace to be that he even welcomed fresh occasions of drawing upon its fullness. I gladly glory, he writes, I even enjoy my thorn. Another writer said, Her biographer paid her a remarkable tribute to the triumph of faith. Emma Pischninska, wife of Polish nobleman, whose life was one long frustration and one continuing disappointment. It was this. She made magnificent bouquets out of the refusals of God. Can you imagine? The the idea being everything that was bad or wrong or a hindrance She uses it to glorify God. Some of you may be familiar with the prayer of the Confederate soldier. I've used it before. He wrote, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked God for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for. I got everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Think about what you're reading. Think about 
the presence of visions and revelations and Paul's point, the possibility of conceit and pride. Let me ask you a question. What if God made a deal with you right now and the Lord said, I'm going to allow you to see things that I wouldn't normally allow you to see. I'm going to give you a peek into heaven. I'm going to open the door ever so slightly. And I am going to let you see what awaits you in eternity. But there's a price that you're going to have to pay. It will be persistent pain and deprivation every moment of every day between now and the end of your life. Would you take it? Do you want a vision of heaven? Do you want a guided tour of the next life? And are you prepared for a thorn? Or you could ask yourself a different question, an easier one. What is your thorn in the flesh? Who or what is the messenger that's been sent by Satan to buffet you? Buffet means afflict. It doesn't mean all-you-can-eat Chinese food. It's not buffet. It's buffet. It can mean different things depending on the context. But here, it means to afflict. What is your failure? What is your inadequacy? What is your thorn? I want you to think about it just for a moment. And then I want you to ask yourself a different question. Have you ever, even for a moment, thought to consider that it might be a gift from God? That this is a gift that has been provided for you so that in humility you'll learn to love and trust the Lord. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that gives you a daily dose of dependency and humility, weakness, a weakness that affects your pride. So what is it? What is the avenue of God's grace in your life? What is the opportunity for you to go, this disability, not having this means that I have to depend upon the Lord More and more and more. Has your inability led you to the place of a greater and a deeper dependency on the grace and the mercy of Jesus? So it's okay to ask yourself questions. Why in the world would God make me helpless? Could it be so that you can trust Him? Why in the world would God make me wait? Could it be to teach you patience? Why in the world would God stretch me? Is it possible that he's trying to give you a deeper vision? Why in the world would God allow us to experience the consequences of wrong choices? You're laughing because you understand the answer. Could it be that God wants to teach us wisdom? 
Why in the world would God permit pain? Why would he afflict us? Maybe to teach us humility? Why in the world would God involve us in the lives of hurting people and difficult people? You know the answer, don't you? Is it maybe so that you could learn unselfishness instead of selfishness? Well, what if I don't want to learn any of that stuff? The list could go on and on, couldn't it? But do you know what all of the things on the list have in common? They're all unpleasant. They're all uncomfortable. Just like a thorn. And so again, we're reminded of the Christian paradox. The way up is the way down. The way to strength is weakness. So who are the strong? Those who are weak. Who are the healthy? Those who in humility have a healthy dependence on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Most people don't talk about the vision and the revelation and also the vexation. But just remember, there was just a very short distance between the thorn in heaven, excuse me, the throne in heaven and the thorn on the earth. So the next time your thorn starts to rub you the wrong way, it's okay for you to say, Lord, take it away. It's also okay for you to hear, my grace is sufficient. And in weakness, I will perfect strength. I know what you're thinking. I don't want to be strong. I know. So look forward to a lifetime of strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that um, sometimes our inability has led us to a place of greater, deeper dependence on the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, again, it's almost impossible to not want to know what is just beyond the door of this life. Lord, we all want a peek into heaven. And yet, Lord, I pray that we will be in constant awareness that the most important thing about heaven isn't that the streets are made of gold or that the gates are made of pearl, but that Jesus is there and that we will be with Jesus. And that if we can love Jesus now and trust Jesus now and depend upon Jesus now, 
that loving and trusting and depending on him throughout eternity will not be a problem. And so again, Father, I pray for that person who lives a life of what seems like constant, persistent, chronic pain. Lord, we pray that that Lord, we will learn the lesson of submission, dependence, humility. In Jesus' name.